Starting last year, the Oregonian turned its investigative spotlight on itself. The result was Publishing Prejudice, a disturbing look at the news organization's history of racism in its reporting and its editorial advocacy. This is Beat Check with the Oregonian. I'm Elliot Noose. A recent installment in the Publishing Prejudice series covered the Oregonian's reporting after the 1948 Vanport flood, and in particular, its failure to humanize the disaster's disproportionate impact on the city's black residents. People displaced by the flood moved into Portland's Albina district, but in the years that followed, the Oregonian cheered on the systematic destruction of the district, then the heart of black Portland. One publicly funded project after the next, Interstate 5, Veterans Memorial Coliseum, the headquarters for Portland Public Schools, forced out hundreds of black residents. Today on the podcast, reporter Rob Davis interviews Sharon Gary Smith, whose parents were among the black homeowners forced to leave the neighborhood and the community they had built there. Here's their conversation. Sharon Gary Smith, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having um, me. You, you grew up at 1835 North Benton between what today is Portland Public Schools headquarters and a city water bureau lot. Uh, you were back there recently with our photographer, Beth Nakamura. Tell me what it was like emotionally to be back at the place that you grew up. Well, first, I had not walked down North Benton. I pass all the time to cross the Broadway Bridge. I had not gone down the street, whatever that is, with intention. I had not turned down there if I went to anything at the Portland Public Schools. I went around interstate to come up into the parking lots. Whatever that says to me then and now, I had not chosen or had no reason to go down the street. And so that purposeful walk, and we started off walking around the building, um, just looking at the layout. And then of course, there's no evidence there were homes on either side of the street. So it took a lot to know that I was back in the place that's not the place anymore. I just feeling and realizing that now, how much that took to be standing on the ground that no longer, there are no markers that we were there. We, we talked as I was reporting the story, we talked about the idea of erasure and tell me what that means to you, both as it applies to the home where you grew up, but also the neighborhood and the newspapers coverage of it, which is to say that it, there wasn't any. Um, even though I was a young person, I'm the eldest in the family of four girls. I was old enough to know, to observe, to record everything that was happening. I was around 10 years old. And so to be there the other day could have been cathartic, but it also was so soul, soul disturbing because this was the physical evidence. There's nothing physical to connect. Um, they wiped everything out. And um, one of the things that I remember that I know another uh, of the um, neighborhood kids that you talk with is don't take anything. 
with you. That's not usually how a home sale goes. That's not usually how a negotiated and arrived at um, selling price goes. Uh, it reminds me of people who've been forcibly removed, which is more what I think about, who can't take anything with them or flood victims who run for their lives and leave all their precious belongings behind or victims of natural disasters. That's what it felt like, but I had not gone down there. So I had these this wealth of emotions about how you displace, remove a people and make sure there's no ability to say they were there. The culture, the stores, the places we walk to, um, all that civic life is gone. And unless there are the descendants who can talk about we were there, where the school was, where the social clubs were, where the churches were, they were also moved. You have lost any evidence that you existed. And um, in the African-American, African community, the griots, the storytellers, the fact that we are storytellers is so critical. And I really realized it when I stood for pictures and looked around there's nothing, even the trees, the roses in the gardens, and there's nothing there that's growing now, many years later, that tells the tale of neighborhoods and blocks and, and childhood friends and special places we roamed. And it's really so all-encompassing that what we miss is the trauma. That's what I felt, and that's what many talk about, is the trauma that is never ending and is never acknowledged. That's what you're talking to us actually unearthed for me. And you can't get that necessarily in written word, but under that is the emotion and the long-term trauma and the failures, the intentional failure to compensate adequately as most home sellers and buyers engage. That all came up to me. It really made so vivid to me the failures, the intention of removing us, not just removing homes, but removing us and the history of being there, the trauma that I didn't even realize I was experiencing. Um, many of my friends, you reconnected us. We talk sometimes, but not all of us, we lead busy lives. But to never be able to talk about the trauma of being taken away, thrown away, displaced, and not compensated adequately, and there's no written word until the research and the writing you did that says what we say is true, how it happened and why it's important, that was never named as though what we're saying is not the truth. And it was just a blip. Well, I'm 75 years old. I was 10. And the fact that I can recall and remember for all of us, it's that unacknowledged trauma and lack of adequate compensation in a sale with a buyer. 
And um, it, it all came up to me. And we were standing there when we walked around the corner. And it's somewhat overwhelming, but I manage things. We all manage things in our own way. It was important for me to realize that I was traumatized, that my sisters, my parents, even though they fought, that, that historical trauma to African-American Black people is absolutely not okay and not, it's unfinished. Tell our listeners what was lost. You were um, a child when you, re- when you moved or when you were forced to move. Tell me what it was like to be growing up at 1835 North Benton. What was, what was there? What do you miss? What was it like? Well, you know, I can say because we were a family of girls uh, running up and down in the neighborhood, knowing that people were watching us, that there were a lot of boys that if we didn't want you for our boyfriend, you became our big brothers, our protectors, you know, the pain house up the street, the hills around the corner. We, I always remember Jerry, whose dog killed our Siamese cat, who was protecting her kittens. I mean, we saw all kinds of things going on. Um, sneaking up through the back of the Paramount Apartments to go to Elliott Elementary School. There was kind of like an old, uh, what we call it, dump yard behind that apartment. It was actually a lot of bushes and berries. And it saved us from that high elevation walk up Flint Avenue. And so those were the kinds of things that we got to do with the other kids because we were seen as little black princesses. You know, we lived a really great life. We didn't know that that was a blighted neighborhood. Rose bushes and lawns that were cut on a regular basis and birthday parties in the backyard with all of our friends and neighborhood kids, you know, dressing up for Sunday best, uh, all of those things. And we have pictures to prove that it really was. Um, so when you, when I went through the pictures, the photos for you, I mean, I don't, there's not a lot of sadness. There was the grandmothers, there were mail carriers, there were teachers and doctors who all lived within reach. Um, my family knew your family and could talk across the fences. Um, we knew how many blocks it was to Broadway, you know? And so you measure a neighborhood as not just how many homes there are, but how many stories and how many experiences and how many families were multi-generation. And that a sense of belonging when the city said you didn't or didn't really pay attention. So why did they pay attention then to remove us? As, as yeah. we reported in our series this week, the displacement of your family in 1961 and so many other Black families happened without a word in the Oregonian. Mm. And, and at times when it did write about projects like Memorial Coliseum or the Interstate, the, the word choice that it used was to call them progress. 
-hmm. And I wonder what you make of the coverage and that framing. I think what I've reconciled and I believe what is that the paper was a mirror of the times. What's unfortunate is that I started to pursue journalism at Washington State because I'd been an editor, um, page editor in high school, is that my understanding from my parents who were avid readers and raised avid readers is that the news is to inform, may not particularly take sides. That was previously. Now we know that there's media that's really very clearly partisan, but it gave you facts and information that were critical to understand the larger picture. So to omit them or not consider them to be important. Um, when I was in the South, I expected that because we understood how the journalism or what you got to view was managed, but I did not, would not expect that here. I read the paper, the two papers at that time, and to not see any evidence of a major decision the removal and displacement of hundreds of people, as well as the Emanuel Hospital removal, to not think that was important, I feel like the paper had to follow the lead of those who control the city, which is dangerous and unfortunate, but it's a sign of the times. And so from I expect journalists to be able to kind of rage at to fight back, to inform, to tell the stories that people may not want to hear but need to know. So it's very discouraging and disappointing. But I know that in those times, we were not significant enough to obviously to matter. The problem is that's often how we go unvoiced and unacknowledged now. So it's the same pattern. The excuses were small in numbers. I know a lot of what's been done to us and the invisibility that's created makes it easy to make that case. I'm glad for the effort now. And I've said that I'm really glad that there is an attention to, I just always want to make sure that it's not just performative or talking equity, but that the evidence is really on the road. Tell me what it was like reading our story this week, reading, seeing your family's um, story told, the photo of you and <laughs> your mom and dad on Easter Sunday in 1950. Um, was it hard to read was a cathartic what do you both. what do you make of it i think i said and i really want to thank you i know as a journalist you write stories you write you but you're telling history in almost any story to me it was so powerful to read my story and centered with friends folks i've known since childhood who had similar and different experiences that all captured that displacement and that push out. It was kind of cool to see myself at two and my parents and the Maxis. I mean, we're childhood friends 
and what I was taken with, as I told the, the precious Avell, we looked so fabulous back then. And now the attention to style and, and, and a sense of glamour and beauty in a neighborhood that was subsequently called um, blighted and dangerous to the health and security of the city, to the people. What people are we talking about that were endangered by our presence? We all know who that is. But I saw the beauty and uh, the birthday parties and all of the dresses and the things we wore and the homes that we lived in, you know, and the attention to the neighborhood's beauty. And so I was saddened. I was mad at times and angry. I was pleased that the story was so well written and done. And I was hopeful that a lot of folks who don't even know one third of that story, at least not the truth of the story that you really explored. I hope that they would read it and think differently, that we're not exaggerating the claims of harm, disappointment, and some people really still have a hard time. They say they can't even talk about it because too many people are in disbelief. And I think if we can get more, I've gotten so many um, emails and texts saying I read it, which really, and they thought the writing was so excellent. They had never seen that level, nor the, the archive photos. The documentation you used is not used in many groups at that level. So they thanked me that you had done the article because they were going, they're going to, I'm going to go to the archives now. And really, that's my new project. So there's joy and there's sadness. They can be intermingled. You would have had plenty of reason and justification not to have talked to me. And I wonder why you did. I think my family is representative of so many because we know the numbers that were taken out of the neighborhoods. And as much as I could take pleasure, it's my story, it's my family, it's my community, which was my family. It's African-Americans in Portland. And I thought I was compelled to talk about what happened to me is more than what happened to me and my family. It's to me and my community, my larger community. And that's why I was willing to talk. I had not thought, actually, Rob, about how the talking about it and then the seeing it might really shake me. But I thought it was important. You know, they say to get something, you got to give something. It's one of the mantras in the community. And I thought it had to be more than just my little self. One of the reasons I reached out to you in, in the first place was just to get your read of what we were trying to do. It was not to talk about your childhood experience. It was that, you know, that came up in the conversation, but we talked for a long time and I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that you shared that story. I've, I've really, when we first talked, just wanted to know whether this was something that you thought we should do. 
Absolutely. And Absolutely. But you also what, know What that do you see as the value in it? Absolutely. Larger than this moment is how many people, how many reads. I was at a program last night with a um, staff person, a manager from the Oregon Department of Transportation. And I mentioned that I'm sending to the commission and to your colleagues, I hope that you will share all three articles. And they said to me, I just saw something about that. I said, don't worry, you're getting an email. And they are one of the people that I talked constantly about, you know, hollow apologies don't matter unless your actions and intentions don't continue to replicate. And so they were willing to listen, but I'm talking about the decision makers, the influencers. They're all going to get it. And several of them I know. The governor is going to get it from me. I've known and watched for a long time. Um, I think it's important. I think this should be required curriculum in Portland public schools because it's different than the story. I would love, I would, I'm going to the board meeting in that building on that street and I'm going to bring it up. I think it is powerful, not about Sharon Gary Smith, about the story that so many of us hold that is Portland, Oregon history. Tell me, um, I want to look forward. Um, there's a $400 million investment from Phil Knight to go toward the future of Albina. Mm -hmm. What is your hope for that area going forward? I'm absolutely committed to what I've seen and heard and have been able to view is the vision of the Albina Vision Trust. They've been pushing this idea of reinvestment, appropriate investment in community. Um, first serve those who were served eviction, African-American, Black Portlanders. And there's been some clamor around that. Well, the people that live there now are the people that lived around there. And we know who those people are who came after us uh, as gentrification was really pushed. I like the idea of a community that invests back significant investment, not just these little clumps of money. Sometimes it's the city's throws to some things. I want it to be the Phil Knight example. And I want others to come aboard at that level with that heft because we can rebuild the city close to the water. Transportation was always public transportation all of the necessary connections and i want it to rise as a community that's more diverse than many of them that are now in place i'm a little bit concerned as i watch this there's a high rise going up of all things down flint or dixon and um it's gone up so quickly but it's right off of broadway and i understand it'll be 160 or so units I don't think it's affordable housing, although there's all kinds of incentives that our city pushes for affordable housing. Um, but it has views to the west across the water. And it's going to have to be, what, seven, eight stories, which 
looks very unusual over there. Um, I'm concerned about speculators and developers who have always reaped the rewards um, and are white in this community we're trying to reclaim. So I know that the smartness of people like Rakaya Adams, D'Artanian Kellerman, the smartness and their going to the community to really solicit and listen to the community. I think we can dream so big and we can do it. Portland's proven to do it intentionally for African-Americans who were displaced and dishonored. I wanna see how the city works with that, how the state works with that, how actively um, corporations and others and individuals like Phil Knight can get on board. I can't wait to see the first fruits of this dream that's been envisioned to begin to show. What is your charge? And we can conclude with this. What What is your charge to the Oregonian going forward? Largest newspaper in the state. You know, we've I looked like, at how it's covered this. I keep, re- I keep reading Teresa Bottomley, right? I keep reading how not only looking back, which is Sankofa, but you look back to go forward. And so I'm excited about the charge that has been made to the newspaper. These kind of wonderful opportunities to see evidence of retelling the story, but telling the stories from the standpoint of those who actually are the principals in it. And then I'd like to see the Oregonian as a newspaper that informs, tell us, continue to tell us what this means as this movement goes forward. What are we talking about here? What is it reshaping? Why does it matter to the greater public? Why is this important and not something to be minimized? In all of its reporting, but particularly where there was none. And so I'm excited and I'm hopeful and I'm always willing to challenge and encourage at the same time. I think that's my job as a member of the community is to ask really strong questions and to have some answers to think about and to be in in concert, in partnership. And so I'm looking forward to it. I'm appreciating the Oregonian because they could have continued to stay silent, many do. But I think there's a public obligation to not only apologize, but to show what you're doing different. Sharon Gary Smith, I want to thank you for sharing your story with me, with our readers, and for joining us on the podcast today. To thank you so much. More. Thank you so much, Rob Davis. Thank you. Well, thanks, Rob, for this conversation uh, and for your reporting. Uh, covering more than a century of history and news coverage from the Oregonian. What were you expecting to find when you started this project? And uh, how did it compare to what you did find? Uh, Thanks for having me on. I mean, I think that when we went into this, you know, this idea of kind of bringing an accountability lens to the newspaper's history, you know, and looking at how did this uh, state get the way that it is? How did modern inequities, how were modern inequities built and institutionalized? Um, 
you know, that started with looking at our own reporting on Oregon's non-unanimous jury system mm -hmm. and kind of grew from there. And so I went in looking for, you know, a specific policy or a vote or some kind of, you know, narrow system to see whether the Oregonian had played the same role in it as it did in the 1930s when it helped create this inequitable jury system that existed until just a couple of years ago. And there were examples like that that I found. But more striking to me was, you know, finding that the newspaper had helped shape sort of the core of our society and its prejudices. This was not, you know, one policy or another. It was the very state in which we live today. And the paper reinforced racism that helped make Oregon what it is today. Um, and so that was, you know, the most striking to me. That the paper played uh, an active role. It wasn't just reflecting the, the community of the time. It was doing two jobs. It's reflecting the community of the time, but it's also shaping opinions of the community of the time. And, and so it is, you know, it is not sort of a chicken or the egg. It is not one or the other. It was doing both. You know, there are times where you see the paper, um, you know, taking very direct and specific um, positions of advocacy, you know, in the uh, 1800s, these are, you know, these abhorrent views like opposing the right to vote for women and people of color, you know, excusing lynching in 1902. Um, you know, as you get into the 1900s, it is, you know, things like championing the um, dissolution of Vanport before the flood. Um, you know, there are, you know, labeling the destruction of Albina um, as progress. And, you know, of course, begging the question of progress for whom. Um, so, you know, I think there are, there are times where you see the newspaper playing both roles um, you know, in the early 1900s. You know, it was in editorials advocating for the legalization of Jim Crow segregation in the state, you know, at the same time that in Washington and California, um, public accommodations laws were being passed, you know, the types of law, the type of law that didn't pass in Oregon until 1953. Um, so, I mean, certainly Oregon is not the way it is today solely because of the Oregonian, but you see it helping to institutionalize, um, you know, the, the racist viewpoints of the time playing kind of both sides of it. So reporting this project meant, and especially the most recent um, installments of it, meant finding and interviewing people who were directly, personally harmed by the Oregonians' coverage and editorializing. Uh, people like Sharon Gary Smith, 
How did the subjects of these stories, uh, the, the people who became the subject of these stories, respond when you first approached them? You know, I, early in the reporting, talked to people, including Sharon, um, not because I thought that I was going to tell their story, but because I wanted to engage with people in the community to see whether this type of reporting project had value and whether it was something we should even do. Um, because I didn't want to be kind of prescriptive and say, this is something that has to be done. I'm going to do it. And, um, you know, let's go really deep and send that off into a community that would say, we don't need to hear this anymore. We know what happened. Um, and so, I talked to Sharon, I talked to uh, Ed Washington, who was displaced by the flood in Vanport. This is the, the first question I asked them was, this is the concept for this project that I have. Is this something we should do? And over and over again, what I heard from people was, yes, this is one of the most valuable stories that you could ever tell in your career, um, which was profound and inspiring to me and helped carry me through the work. Um, you know, these are not unknown stories, you know, at, at this point, if you have tuned into the news in Portland, in Oregon, you know, about the impact of things like the legacy Emanuel project that destroyed 22 city blocks in the heart of black Portland for a project that didn't happen, right? This is destruction for the sake of destruction. Um, it had, it had no there's no trade-off for it, you know, interstate five, at least there's a road there. Um, you know, uh, a manual there's, there's just fields, there's empty lots, there's parking lots today, um, in what used to be, uh, the center of, of a vibrant, you know, uh, black community. So why did the people that you spoke to feel that it was one of the most important stories that could be told today? These, these chapters have been written, the accountability lens, I don't think had focused on the newspaper before. And so, you know, I heard from people, well, you know, in many ways, these stories have been told and, um, and it was, it was clear that, and it was clear that, um, the newspapers role in it had not been scrutinized, uh, that, that, that had not been the focus of it. You know, when we wrote about the non-unanimous jury system and the Oregonians role in shaping that the focus is on the creation of the system and the fact that it still existed in modern times and was disproportionately impacting people of color. You know, the 10th paragraph was about the Oregonians advocacy for it. Um, and so, you know, we've, you can read about the role that interstate construction played in destroying black communities around the country. But what has not been told or has not been told very much is the role that something like 
the dominant newspaper in a city played and its coverage played in that chapter of history. And so I felt like it was important to air that out, to focus on it, to look at the impact, to see who was impacted and to understand what was lost. And what do you hope will come of this reporting? You know, one of the best analogies that I heard for the work begins with the idea that, you know, we have a house with dry rot in the foundation and we had to strip away the walls and the floorboards to start helping to rebuild it. And, and I think that by doing that, we have a better chance to be a more transparent and fair broker of the discussions that are essential to building a better state for us and for our kids. You know, once you know what's hiding in the basement, it felt wrong to ignore it. So has this experience, this, this reporting, has it affected the way that you are going to approach your own reporting in the future? You know, one of the things, so we, we brought in community reviewers to um, provide what was essential and valuable feedback on the work. And one of the things that we heard from them was a desire for anchors in the present, you know, looking at how through lines from these chapters of history still manifest today. Um, and as I'm, as I go forward and shift my focus back to the present, I hope that having told these stories can sort of do the inverse for my reporting, which is root today's problems in the past and help readers in the community understand how we got here. Well, thank you, Rob, for this, uh, reporting and for this conversation. Hey, thank you so much. Listeners will find a link to the entire Publishing Prejudice series in the episode description. When the first installments of the series were published, Therese Bottomley, editor of The Oregonian, wrote an apology and pledged to keep readers up to date on our present day progress toward more equitable and inclusive news coverage. The episode description also includes a link to her latest update. Thank you for listening to Beat Check with The Oregonian. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. And tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism and stories like this one is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.